Romans chapter 12. I'm curious, have you ever felt like you could not live the Christian life the way you should? I have. Are you frustrated because you sometimes you don't it doesn't seem like you have spiritual victory in your life? I have. Do you struggle with the simplest forms of obedience? I do. Are you, do you feel constantly defeated? Well, my friends, if you feel that way, this message is for you. This message is for me. And so I, today, God's Word is going to offer you hope. And here's the key to spiritual victory. One of the keys, I should say, to spiritual victory. There's many, but... Some of us need to stop trying to get all we can from God, treating Him like some vending machine, and give all you have to Him. I need to really explain that, and the Scripture is going to explain that more. But do you understand there's, just, there, there's countless thousands of people today, including many genuine Christians, they, they just flock to various churches, they, they love going to seminars and conferences in search of personal benefits that they hope to receive. Why would you spend that money in that time, right? There's people who are doing just the opposite of what Paul is so plainly emphasizing here in Romans 12. Paul doesn't focus on what more we need to receive from God. In fact, he's already spent 11 chapters doing that, showing you all these wonderful blessings from God. What he does here is he's focusing on what we are to give to God. Now, the key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is it's not in getting more from God, but what are you giving to God? Tragically, though, that, that is often far from the approach that is uh, common, even in some Christian circles. We're told that victory in the Christian life is you're to have more of God, uh, to have more from God, as if Ephesians 1 verse 3 is not in your Bible. right? You know what that verse says, that God the Father has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As if you can get more from God than you, you already have. And so therefore, in, in, in an eternal sense, we cannot have more of God than you already possess, that is. And so it, it is obvious that many Christians do not have the fullness of joy that this particular blessing should bring. So what's the problem then? If you already have, right, as Ephesians 1.3 says, you, you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing, and you're struggling with those things we've already asked in the beginning, then what is the problem? Well, Christians need to surrender back to God, what God has already given to them. Therein lies the problem. Now, one of the things that I really like about Paul's letters, and this was written by the Apostle Paul here, one thing thing I like is he, he concludes his letters with a list of practical duties that are based on the doctrines that he's laid out in the beginning. He's very well organized in that way. 
Now, what does that tell you? It tells you a lot of things. But number one, it tells you that doctrine and duty go together. Doctrine and duty go together. You've heard me say many times, your theology drives your methodology. Theology always drives your methodology. And what, in other words, what you believe, you're going to live out what you believe. You're going to do what you think. So what we believe helps to determine how we behave. It's not enough for us to just know the truth. You've got to translate the learning into living. And that's what the Bible is trying to do for us here. And so the key in, in this particular section here is it's all about relationships. Did you pick that up as we were reading in chapter 12? Uh, now, now here it starts with God. It starts with God. If you, if you have a right relationship with God, then all the other relationships you have in your life are going to sort themselves out. For example, let me just show you this real quick before we read it. Uh, here, here's what um, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is showing us here. For example, uh, starting in verse 3 there, it talks about our, our relationship to other believers. And then, then it goes on to show our relationship to our enemies. And then uh, chapter 13 of Romans, what is your relationship to the state? Chapters 14 and 15, is a, it goes back to the relationship to believers. So it's all about relationships. See, all that the, the beautiful truth in chapters 1, to 11, needs to be worked out in your relationships. And so I hope you can see the key idea in this section here is relationships. And so let's focus in on just two verses, and, and, and we're going to, let's talk about our relationship with God. Let's read the, the words of the living God from Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's my proposition. I didn't put it on the screen. But basically, the proposition for today is that God wants you to be totally dedicated to Him. Again, God wants you to be totally dedicated to Him. And so there's four elements of what does this dedication to God look like? What does it involve? Four elements. So think of it as a, as a beautiful, yummy, delicious cake that has four ingredients. You need all four of these beautiful ingredients to make a yummy cake. Because, I mean, for example, have you ever had baking soda all by itself? That's disgusting, right? Or, um, you know, I'm, uh, no, I won't go there. Uh, I was going to be silly, but you, you get the point, right? you got to have all these things to, together to, to show, are you really totally dedicated to God? And the first element of true dedication here is in verse 1, and we see that the soul must be given to God. He owns it anyway, but have you given your soul to God? Now, I say that because you, you look at verse 1. Somewhere in verse 1, you should have the word, therefore. You know when you see the word, therefore, in your Bible, you ought to ask, what is it there for? You know that. What is it there for? Well, it's referring back to that, that doxology in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. 
the, the, the last four verses of chapter 11 is a beautiful doxology of praise to God. I mean, just look at the last verse. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. And we say, truly, amen. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so because glory belongs to God, we should do those things that are mentioned in these verses. Now the only way that we're going to we're going to want to glorify God as if we have been saved by the mercies of God. That, that's all that verses chapters 1 through 11 is all about. Now notice in verse 1 here that Paul's addressing who? Brothers, brethren, believers. You say, well, what's the point of that? Why is he addressing Christians? Because everything that you're about to hear can only be obeyed by Christians. Unbelievers can't obey this. They're, they don't really care about their relationship with God. They don't care about a relationship with other Christians and toward the state and so forth, right? And they don't care about their relationship with their enemies. And so the unsaved person can't obey those things. They don't really care about those things. And so verse 1 mentions here the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, if I could kind of take chapters 1 through 11 and, and, and condense it and summarize it, it's basically the mercies of God are His love and His grace. That's the mercies of God. So let me just, I'll put on, throw a few things on the screen here from chapters 1 through 11. For example, we, we see the power of salvation, chapter 1, verse 16. The forgiveness of our sins, peace with God reconciliation with God, eternal life in God's presence, freedom from our sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of our bodies, personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, divine sonship, and glorification, and we could keep going. You get the point? That is the mercies of God. And so, Paul's appealing to you. He's urging you. He's begging you based on chapters 1 through 11. All of that good stuff. Do something with it. Such soul-saving mercies are to be a motivator for you. To motivate believers to do what, though? It's to motivate you to complete dedication. So the most compelling motivation should be this. It should. The primary motivator should not be a loss of reward or, or uh, discipline. Uh, those things can be motivators, but hopefully the, the most compelling motivation for a faithful, obedient Christian should be the marvelous mercies of God. I encourage you to read chapters 1 through 11. Take note of all those mercies of God. Let them motivate you to total dedication to God. So what's the second element of true dedication? We see here that the body must be given to God as well. See? He's appealing to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Now, that's an, that word present there is an interesting word. Uh, in the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, the, the word present was often used as a technical term for a priest 
placing an offering on the altar. Same word. Uh, so it carried the idea of surrender or a yielding up. Therefore, we're, we then are exhorted here to perform what is essentially a priestly act of worship. Therefore, that's why verse 1 ends with those words, which is your spiritual worship. So our bodies, by the way, I hope you understand, are more than just physical shells that house your soul. Uh, They're also where our humanness resides. And so it's a fearful thing to consider that if we allow them to, our fallen bodies are still able to thwart the impulses of a redeemed soul. Yeah. You have to control your body. So God creates our bodies for Himself. And in this life, we cannot work, uh, or, or He can't work through us without working through our bodies. That's how He made us. And so there can be no sanctification. There can be no holy living uh, apart from your body. In fact, the Bible says that the Christian's body is the Spirit's temple in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what it says. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Not just your body, of course, but notice your, your body is included as well as your spirit. Why? Because they're God's. He owns it all. It's His. He made it. And so Paul tells us about our bodies being given to God. How do you go about that? Well, here's, uh, here's just some points to consider. Paul admonishes us here to offer our imperfect but useful bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. So your body, we see here, is to be a living sacrifice. And so you probably know Paul's using language from the Old Testament ritual offerings that God had told Israel to do. And so according to the law, a Jew would would bring an offering, uh, an animal, uh, to the priest, and then that, that priest would take that animal, he would slay the animal, and uh, place it on the altar on behalf of the person who was bringing the animal. But the sacrifices required by God's law are no longer of any effect. Hebrews tells us that. They're of no longer any effect, because the Lamb of God offered Himself. So sacrifices of dead animals are no longer acceptable to God. Praise God. You, you don't have to bring an animal into to, to any church meeting, do you? And the only acceptable worship under our, our new covenant now is the offering of yourself to God. That's what God wants, yourself. From the beginning, God's first and His most important requirement for acceptable worship, has, has it's always been... An obedient, faithful heart. By the way, do you know it was, it was the same for Israel? The Israelite bringing the animal also needed to come with a faithful, obedient heart. You don't believe me? Well, here's what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 15, 22. 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. I think this is a helpful illustration to demonstrate here for you the difference between a dead and a living sacrifice. So let's let's use the, the illustration from Genesis of Abraham and Isaac. Because Genesis 22, verse 2 says, Then God said, Take now your son. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So that was God's command to Abraham. Kill your only son. So, think about this. Had Abraham carried out that sacrifice, Isaac would have become a dead offering. Abraham would have been a living sacrifice. You see the difference? Maybe that's obvious. But Abraham was willing to commit absolutely everything to God. That is, that is a, a good example of a living sacrifice. He was trusting in God wholeheartedly. No matter how great the demand, no no matter how devastating the sacrifice was, he was totally dedicated, at least at that moment. God did not require, fortunately, either father or son to carry out the intended sacrifice. Both of the men already had offered the real sacrifice that God wanted, which was what? What did he want from them? He wanted a living sacrifice. He he wanted their faith and their trust. They wanted, God wanted their their total concentration. Consecration. They were willing to do what God wanted them to do. And so the living sacrifice that we're to offer to God is this willingness then to surrender to Him all that you are. So that includes your hopes, your plans. God's resources that He's given to you, everything that is precious to you, your loved ones, all those people you love, what is dear to your heart. Are you willing? Here's what David Livingston said. By the way, David, in case you don't know, David Livingston was a a well-known English missionary to Africa And he kept a journal. Here's what he said. I I like what he said. Quote, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward of healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, such a view, and such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let this only be for a moment. 
All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which Christ made when he left his Father's throne on high to give himself for us. End quote. Well, another commentator had this to say. Here's what he says. Quote, Christians who offer a living sacrifice of themselves usually do not consider it to be a sacrifice. And it is not a sacrifice in the common sense of losing something valuable. The only things we entirely give up for God to be removed and destroyed are sin and sinful things, which only bring us injury and death. But when we offer God the living sacrifice of ourselves, He does not destroy what we give Him, but refines it and purifies it. End quote. So my friends, I hope you recognize your body is to be a living sacrifice, and it's not really a sacrifice, is it? It's the best thing for you. Number two. We need to think of this living sacrifice as holy. You're to be holy. And so holy there, in your Bible, in the literal sense of meaning, it means to be set apart for a special purpose. Now under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, a sacrificial animal was was to be without blemish. It was to be without spots. Uh, they weren't supposed to be bringing animals that were half dead, you know, sick or broken limbs and so forth, right? Not the ones that were going to die tomorrow, right? Not those kind of animals. God wanted the best. Now that physical purity symbolized the spiritual and moral purity that God required of the one who offered the animal. You understand the symbolism there. So, it's interesting, through the prophet Malachi, the Lord actually rebuked Israel for sacrificing animals were not, that were not the best. Here's what God says in Malachi 1, verse 8. He says, When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? <laughs> Ooh, don't do that. Uh, would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Rhetorical questions. You know the answer. The governor wants the best. So why do you give the governor the best, but, you know, the half-dead animal, uh, you give that one to God? Doesn't make sense, does it? So what is the Lord's purpose for his church today? Well, here's what Ephesians 5, verse 25 says. That Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having, look at this, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Hmm. Those of you guys who are married, or uh, guys here who want to be married, how many of you go look for the worst woman in the world to marry? Did any of you do that? Did you go look for the ugly, the ugliest one? 
right? You know, the, you know what I mean? Is that what you do? Guys don't do that, right? Normal guys don't do that, right? You, you, want, you want something that, in, in, in this sense of the word, you want something that's holy. You want a beautiful woman. You don't want a deformed, something deformed and, you know, that's half dead. And, and so there's that imagery of Christ and his bride. And sadly, though, many people today are perfectly willing to give God second best or maybe third or even worse than that. But did you know that the leftovers mean little to those kind of people and mean even less to God? Now you might say, well, why should I dedicate my body to God? God says, present my body to Him as a living sacrifice and to present it as holy here. Well, Paul gives you two reasons why you should dedicate your body to God. Look at the text. Number one, we see right at the beginning of verse one, it's the right response. (laughs) This is the proper right response to all that God has done for you in chapters one through 11. That's why he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So it's the right response. And number two, this dedication is our reasonable service to God. You could say it's the logical thing to do. Because the, the, the word in your Bible there, when it says this is acceptable to God, some of your Bibles might say reasonable service. That is your Greek word, logikos, from which we get the English words logic and logical. So you could say that this is the logical thing to do. In response to all of the mercies of God, logically we are to present our bodies to Him. And they're to be holy. So that's why. Well, there's a third element of true dedication. Moving on. Hopefully you'll see there's a complete picture going on here. And God says the mind must be given to him as well. So not just your soul, not just your body, but God says even your mind belongs to him, is to be given to him. And God uses two commands here. Uh, One is negative, the other is positive. Let's look at the negative one first in verse 2. See, the negative command is don't be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed there refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within you. It was, it's a word that's used of masquerading. Uh, it's a word used of putting on an act. You're fake, right? You know somebody wearing a mask? It, it, does the mask, is that who the person is? No. Behind the mask is who the person is. The verb, by the way, is in Greek, is passive as well as imperative. Uh, so when you see something in Greek being passive here, it's indicating there's that, that conf, uh, a conformation is something we allow to be done to us. You're passive in this. And, and who is acting on you? What is acting on you? What are you allowing to, to act upon you? In this case, it's the world. And by the way, notice this is a command. In other words, it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. This is something you must do. Don't conform to the world. Now, what is the world? There's, there's misconceptions on that. World there 
refers to the present sinful age. It's the it's a system, cosmos, a system that is at the present moment dominated by Satan. So you could sum it up this way. The world is this demonic human philosophy of life that we are surrounded by. We live in it. We're swimming in it, so to speak. And so that's why in 1 John 2, verse 15, it says this. Look at that. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. What, what's that? What, what does that entail? What's in the world? It is the desire or lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is not of the Father, but that's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, there's some good motivation. <laughs> so are you going to live for what's passing away, or are you going to live for what is, what is permanent and lasting? Well, you say, well, how do, how do I know if I'm conformed to the world? I mean, this is a passive verb, right? Well, how do, how do I know if that's the case? Well, let me give you some things to think about. What disturbs you the most? What disturbs you the most? Here's, here's one thing to think about. Are you more disturbed by a lost soul going to hell or a scratch on your new car? You say, that's silly. That, that wouldn't bother me. Hey, I've had I've had so-called Christians chew me out and yell at and yell at me and say rather nasty things to me over a scratch on their new car. Here's another thing to think about. What bothers you, disturbs you more? Sin in your life or a virus on your computer? Or how about missing a church service? Or does it bother you if you miss a day's work? Which which one are you more disturbed by? Missing work or church? How about if the sermon goes a few minutes too long or lunch is a half hour late? What disturbs you more? Or your unopened Bible or your unread newspaper? Or church work being neglected or your housework neglected? Missing Bible study or missing your favorite TV program? Which one bothers you more? Or how about this? Which one bothers you more, disturbs you more? How about no prayer or the All Blacks not winning the World Cup? Hopefully one of those things have stepped on your toes somewhere. I don't know which one works for you. But uh, sometimes those things are quite revealing and they hurt. It reveals what's going on in my heart. Well, that's the negative command. Don't allow yourself to be conformed to this world. You're living in the world, but you don't have to become like the world. How do you do that? Well, here's the positive command. It says, be transformed in verse 2. Now, that Greek verb, very interesting word, metamorpho. Metamorpho. The idea is, it, uh, is there's this change in outward appearance. It's uh, We get the English word metamorphosis from that Greek word. So uh, you say, well, what is metamorphosis? And I know Wikipedia is not the best source of information. Very unreliable. But anyway, here's what Wikipedia says about metamorphosis. It, it's a biological process by which an animal, animal 
physically developed after birth or hatching, involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change in the animal's body structure through cell growth and differentiation. So for me, that my favorite example of, of that Greek word there, of be transformed or metamorpho, is, is the, how a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. So if there's, there's some butterfly eggs, right? So you might have some plants in your garden. The butterfly flies along and lays, lays its eggs on that plant. And, and you might know that eventually from that, a caterpillar is going to come out of the egg. And you'll see metamorpho take place in this next picture. There's the process. It, caterpillar turns into a chrysalis, right? Comes out of the chrysalis and eventually turns into a, a beautiful butterfly. That's what it means to be transformed. Now, this verb here, again, is another passive imperative Greek verb. And you say, well, what's the point? We're commanded to allow ourselves to be changed. Are you allowing God to change you? Or are you being stubborn, rebellious? Here's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. Look at this. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to change you into the image of Christ? That's what's supposed to be happening. And although we are to aspire to this outward change, by the way, it can be accomplished here only by the Holy Spirit working in us. The only way. So how does the Holy Spirit achieve this transformation? How are you to be transformed by the Holy Spirit? Well, again, you look at verse 2. It happens by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is really important. (laughs) Don't neglect it. Our transformation is affected by inward change in your mind. You want to change your actions, what you do? You've got to work on your mind. The Holy Spirit's, that's the Holy Spirit's means for transforming your minds. And, and he, He's going to use the Bible. He's written the Bible to help you be transformed. That's why Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not or may not sin against you. There's one more element you need to know about from this text. Of how, how do I have this relationship with God where I am totally dedicated and consecrated to Him? Well, here's the last one. In verse 2, we see the will must be given to God. The will must be given to God. So it's your soul, your body, your mind, and your will. Complete. And so, my friends, we, we must allow the Holy Spirit to conform our wills to the will of God. Now, notice there's this phrase. The Greek construction is interesting here in verse 2 where it talks about that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Some of your Bibles may say that you, you may prove. The idea here, this is a purpose-result there's a purpose result going on here. In other words, what I'm saying is this. When a, when a believer's mind is transformed, 
your, your thinking ability, your moral reasoning, your spiritual understanding are now able to properly assess everything. But until then, you're not able to do that. And then you're able to accept only what conforms to the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Here's what you have to do. Are you totally dedicated and surrendered? Now, what's the effect of a truly dedicated life? There is an effect. And the answer is, you will know the will of God. You will know God's will. See, a dedicated life now has the power to perceive what is God's will. Did you see that in verse 2? See, if you're not conformed to the world, but you're allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you, you now have the ability to discern what is the will of God. Now, why, why you say, okay, some people need some motivation. So, you might say, why would I want to know the will of God? Okay? God's will has three characteristics mentioned here. Number one, God says His will is good. That's one reason why you should know the will of God. It is good. In other words, it, it will always be beneficial in its effects upon you. Always. We need never fear the consequences of obeying God. Never. Not for one moment. Yeah, it might be hard. It, it, in fact, it will be hard. Okay? Obeying God is not always easy. The example was Abraham, right? When Abraham, by faith, obeyed God. That was hard. Offering your only son on an altar would be very, very difficult. But notice number two, it is also acceptable. When our minds are adjusted to God's mind, we're, we're never going to find God's will obnoxious. See, it's acceptable. It's something you want. And then number three, it's perfect. So God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea there is it's flawless, it's complete, it is mature. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing wrong with God's will. It is everything it should be. It's not lacking. So you kind of take all three of those. These three add up to make a happy, joyous, and victorious Christian experience. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Do you want to know God's will? Do you want to do God's will? Well then, where does it start? Well, it starts with the mercies of God, of course. But have you given your soul to God? Have you given your body to God? Have you given your mind to God? Have you given your will to God? That's, that's how it works. So the product of a saved soul, a yielded body, a transformed mind, is a life that does the things that God has declared in His Word to be good, acceptable, and perfect. These, these are the things that are righteous. These are the things that are fitting for you. These are the things that are complete. And so that's the goal of a truly dedicated Christian life. And so I ask you, my friends, are you truly dedicated? Well, here's something to consider. I love this. This was written by a young African pastor who then tacked this up on the, the wall of his house. I don't know who this is. Okay, it's anonymous. But it was entitled, My Commitment as a Christian. So I, 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 I 
I go over this every once in a while. It's just, it's kind of a, well, how do I say it? It's, it's kind of like a thing to just kind of, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I truly committed and dedicated as a Christian? So here's what he says. Anyway, I don't think I put it up there, but he says, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fixed, or fast, sorry. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. And my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. How clear is your banner? Will Jesus recognize you when He comes? So that's the proposition, my friends. God wants you to be totally dedicated to Him. Are you? Are you truly dedicated? Well, let these elements here reveal what is really going on in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us this glorious passage, powerful truth. And so we ask that You would do in us what we can never do for ourselves. Uh, hopefully, we give us the motivation for a right relationship and fellowship with You. Give us that desire and then give us the right motivation and the, your grace that would enable us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Uh, would you enable us to, instead of being conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of our mind? May we know what your will is and do your will because... We understand it is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you for revealing this to us. Would your spirit do this work in us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.